welcome to Level with Emily. This is music by composer Ross Tregenza for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, a new game in the canon of the original film from 1974. The game comes from Gun Interactive, a studio in Lexington, Kentucky, known for its, you know, white glove approach to nostalgic horror, like Friday the 13th in 2017, they did that. The studio's CEO and visionary is Wes Keltner, and I had a great chat with Wes and Ross about what it's like making a game out of one of the most iconic horror films of all time, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And the sounds in the game are unique and terrifying for two really good reasons. One, the chainsaw or chainsaws, and something called the apprehension engine. In addition to running the studio, Wes got into making some of the sounds that Ross would then use musically. Wes got his hands on, or actually had one made, an apprehension engine, and it was literally made for Wes and for this game. An apprehension engine is an instrument that was created by composer Mark Corvin so that Mark Corvin could make horrifying sounds in his music. As far as the chainsaw or chainsaws goes or go, I'll allow Wes and Ross to tell that story. Wes spent a lot of time and resources finding exactly the same chainsaws used in the original film from nearly 50 years ago. On top of all of that, Wes worked with composer Jim Bonney. You might recall Jim Bonney's name from his work on Bioshock Infinite and many other things. Uh, but Wes and Jim Bonney made an additional soundtrack of gameplay music. So there are two soundtracks for the game, which is really cool. One by composer Ross Tregenza, who's in this conversation, and then the other that Wes worked with um, composer Jim Bonney on. So very cool. Okay, oh, join us on Discord. That link is in the show notes. Subscribe to this channel, please. There's giveaways happening right now, all kinds of really great incentives for you to support us financially. Learn more at patreon.com slash level. Here are Wes Keltner and Ross Tregenza talking about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. My name is Wes Keltner. I'm president of Gun Interactive. We are a studio that uh, writes the design for games and we uh, identify what intellectual property we might want to work with. In this case, uh, we work with a lot of nostalgic horror IP. Uh, we are directors or producers. Uh, we, we touch just about every aspect of the game. And then uh, we also handle marketing and publishing for the game, social community, those kind of aspects. Uh, and then we identify who's the right team to bring sort of the vision to life, and that's when we met Sumo Nottingham, and I got introduced uh, to a incredibly talented composer. His name is Ross. Please, Ross, introduce yourself. Oh, that was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Ross Tregenza. Um, I work for Sumo Nottingham, as Wes said. I'm um, project audio director and composer, which means I handle a lot of the day-to-day in-game sound design and and uh, cinematics things like that as well as uh working on the the soundtrack and the dynamic aspects of the uh the music uh pretty much all aspects of of audio for the game um uh been around for a long time in the games industry like yeah. 21 years now i think I've worked on stuff like um 
Time Splitters, Crisis, Star Wars, Alien vs. Predator, Deathloop, Cyberpunk, Wolfenstein, Gears of War, just a lot of them. Um, yeah. But out of all of them, this, this, is, this has been my dream project. I'm so happy. <laughs> really? I, I did a massive crazy holler uh, the day that it got announced we were going to be working on this game. I'm a huge horror nerd, so uh, okay. yeah, working with Wes has just been awesome. <laughs> oh, cool. He's, he's got the tattoos to prove it. He's, yeah. He is a genuine... <laughs> horror nerd just like we are at gun so uh, it, it was just refreshing to meet someone who instantly they get it they get the yep. content or the the subject they get the sound uh, um yeah we definitely we bonded quickly over what was this supposed to sound like because if as you've emily seen the film just recently at that time uh there weren't many films that sounded like the texas chainsaw sure the sound design in that in that movie is incredible and also the way and i think this is something the very few amount of horror films that i've watched but what i do know of horror is often the music kind of crosses those lines right it, mm. it's like part of yeah, the sound definitely. design in a way so uh i mean and i have so much so many questions about you you Wes and your dedication to sound um, and also just, Ross, how you then implemented all of the found sounds. Because I know there's some really cool videos online and, and all kinds of things that people can poke around and learn more about. But, um, but mm, let's yeah. just talk about the importance of sound in both the film and then uh, your game. For sure. Um, obviously, Wayne Bell was the composer from the film. He and Toby Hooper, Toby Hooper, the director, uh, worked closely yeah. together to figure out what sonically were they trying to sort of say in that and they don't they knew they didn't want a soundtrack that gotten the way of the visual intensity of that film so you do get a lot of ambient sort of things living a bit in the background uh some industrial sounds so to speak and i don't mean industrial as in like the genre of music more like actual literal machine sounds yeah. um there was hogs taken to slaughter they captured that and that's in the layers of it but also uh, a lot of found instruments, um, things patched together to beat on and make weird noises from, as well as they went to a lot of secondhand stores and bought broken children's toys. Um, and, like music kids, musical instruments that were broken in disrepair and would keep them in disrepair and again, like hit them with objects, play them with other, uh, some cello bows to all kinds of random things too get the sound that they that Wayne Bell sort of already heard in his head. Um and, and it created this this cacophony that um at again at the time no one had heard um anything like that. And it matched the visual of no one had seen a film quite like that either. So it really went well, very hand in hand, and in sometimes was quite minimal in what you heard uh during the scenes. Because yeah. There's more of that movie that doesn't have music. I put in air quotes because I don't know what you would call what you heard in that. It definitely yeah. wasn't something you would tap a toe to, if no, you know what I mean. Definitely um, not. But there was something um, something there that became so minimal to the point that there were more scenes without it than with it. So whenever they did bring yeah. it in, it, it was meaningful and impactful. And that was a challenge that Ross and I both had to figure that out. Mm -hmm. um, luckily, Wayne Bell is still alive and I was able to, you know, pick his brain a little bit and talk to him a little bit um, and bounce things off of Kim Hinkle, who was the original 
writer of the film. He was kind mm. of known as the second director. He was literally standing beside Toby Hooper. If you see any film stills that are like behind the scenes, yeah. you see Toby in front of the camera and the person standing next to him is Kim Hinkle. Wow. Um, luckily, he's still alive too. So we're able to ask him questions about how did they do this sound? What was this thing? So we've got a lot of good like foundational information to get started. Um, but we still had a, a mountain, a mountain to climb in what does this thing sound like? Ross, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with with all of that. Um, I think um, well, there's there's so much to love about what they did uh sonically with the film in terms of uh, uh like you you touched on um a lot of horror will have sort of a, a gray area between sound design and um the score but i think this film was really was like one of the early pioneers of really pushing that i mean there are points that you don't even really quite know if what you're hearing is you know some diegetic things is there a pig somewhere there screaming or is there some metal being shaken uh, just off screen or is it part of the soundtrack and, and that blur was just phenomenal um i also uh i was a huge fan uh of the fact the music wasn't used uh, as a comfort blanket to the listener, which uh, a lot of right. horror film scores can be guilty of, that they um, mm. they do very long uh, signposting and and making sure that when the you know the big scare happens, you kind of knew uh, from you know hundred meters away what was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, this film is like the the polar opposite of that. There are times when the music's insanely tense, and really it's just people walking through a field, so you're on edge because you've been taught by the structure of normal like film soundtracks that means it's all about to go crazy and it doesn't in some of those points and then at other points you know you've got Leatherface come charging out of the door and you just you weren't ready for that because you haven't been given that comfort blanket that you that you expect yeah. from from the film score so that was uh immediately that was something I hoped that we could try and uh replicate in some way and make sure that we're providing like a really interesting dynamic experience when you play the game, but also it's not, not a comfort blanket. It's the opposite. It's uh, it makes yeah. you feel tense when not much is going on. And sometimes, you know, it'll go crazy and uh, you just didn't see it coming. So that, that aspect I think was challenging, but exciting from the beginning because they did that so well in the film for sure. And that became sort of a ongoing theme between Ross and I was this sort of this idea of being uncomfortable, like both from the film when you're watching what you're hearing to even the challenges between the two of us, me really, you know, pushing for us both to get somewhat uncomfortable and not like falling on maybe some some tricks of the trade or things that we might know can, can fill in the gap or, oh, just fall back on this instrument maybe that you're good at or this you know, what, so on and so forth. Like, let's not do that. Like, let's really push and get uncomfortable because that's where we can really make something, I think, truly unique and truly special. Uh, yeah. And it led us down some interesting paths for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the the sound of the truck in the very, very beginning, like the first incident mm -hmm. when, the, when the semi goes by and then there's the generator and then, mm. then finally the chainsaw comes in and it's like, those are all, they're all like normal sounds, right? But they were so loud and it, it, it is very uncomfortable and, you know, deliberate, right? Cause you want to turn it down, but you're like, well, you, they can't, you know, I mean, that's just, mm -hmm. it's real. It's a real sound. Um, yep. so, so amazing. And the first death 
totally didn't expect it. I even texted a friend. I was like, didn't expect that one, you know? It's just like out of nowhere. And then the other two, the the two that come, and I I mean, please, no spoilers, obviously, right? People have seen this movie probably uh, a few times, but... um, Yeah, I don't think you need to worry about spoilers. Yeah, I don't think so either. Uh, The the second two deaths, you kind of know what's coming. You're like, okay, well, that makes sense because she goes in looking for him and then he goes in looking for them. And then the fourth one when he's oh I just burst out laughing I was like didn't expect that either like oh my gosh yeah I mean it's it's really fun and um it's 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 nice that none of that was telegraphed you know it was yeah Yeah. a a nice surprise it's almost a a documentarian approach is what Toby Hooper took when he shot that um and and he did that purposefully I think in that decision sort of was this sort of darker humor he was kind of trying to bring to light is to I'm kind of pulling the rug out from under your feet here you think it's this one thing when it's yeah. kind of not but it, it also very much is like right in your face and brutal and visceral mm-hmm. um, yeah so when you talk to Kim Hinkle the again the, the guy who wrote it um, yeah. he talks a lot about yeah a lot of people didn't get the the that there's some humor in this film and we're all like, no, dude, there's no humor in this film. Like, this is, this film is, is brutal. And he was like, no, 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 no. There's, there's, there's funny things in there. And I'm like, okay. There, there uh, but the more we are. talked to him, the more we started seeing that, uh, that side of it and seeing sure. where he was going with it. But uh, yeah, great film. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Wes, you talked about how you are a fan of nostalgic horror. And of course, there's a lot of it, right? Um, so what made you choose this? They chose us. Um, oh, okay. So we we had made um, a successful game previously that was uh, Friday the 13th, yep. which is based on Jason Voorhees and his yep. uh, ongoings in Camp Crystal Lake. And um, I haven't seen that one either, just so you know. Yeah. Sorry. It, it, none of them. There's like a ton none of, of them. them. Uh, okay. <laughs> I won't hold it against you this time, but next time we hang out, you better have seen something. I, I'm telling you, I think you created a monster, so go okay, on. Okay, I, I like it. I like that I've converted you. <laughs> Um, so we, with the success of Friday, um, the rights holders that own the rights to Texas Chainsaw, um, which is Kim Hinkle and then his son and a, and a few other folks, those people are around our age. And so they played Friday the 13th and they're like, these are the guys. Like, nice. they know what they're doing. Uh, it's like a white glove approach to the IP. It's, you know, fans first, like they're the guys we should trust with this. And so they set up a call. We met with them and we're like, absolutely. We adore Texas Chainsaw. Like, <laughs> um, but it was also came with it um, a pretty, not only a pretty big responsibility because that's all, obviously a well-known IP, but we also knew that we couldn't just do the same thing again in terms of the gameplay design of yeah. that. You know, we had to uh, start over and figure out how do you make a Texas Chainsaw game? Mm-hmm. Um, and that had its own problems too. But definitely get, securing that IP and then rewatching the film again, basically right when negotiations began, I started watching it and I called the creative director and I go, I forgot that the sound, what the soundtrack of this thing was. And he was like, yeah, it's different. I'm like, it's more than different. Like this is going to be difficult. Like this would be difficult to do in a game. Like yeah, you can you can probably find s- sound packs that you can download into Ableton or whatever you use, and and probably start getting some weird stuff going. But it's not the same thing when you're de- when you're creating non-linear music 
that, that lives in a game, right? It's it's yep. different. Um, so I already saw that writing on the wall from the beginning that this was going to be a, a, an interesting challenge. Mm-hmm. To make the game, I mean, because the film itself is shy of 90 minutes, right? And so, so to make it a game and to kind of like... I don't want to say add more interesting things because the film is interesting enough. It's fantastic, right? But uh, but how did you kind of plump out the experience, I guess? Oh, it's all Ross right there. I mean, the, not not having him, if we didn't have him, we would still be scratching our heads to figure out how do we do this? <laughs> it was it's, it was a difficulty for sure because uh, the music's extreme and um, uh, jarring uh, for a lot of it, um, which is a difficulty because, like you say, you've got to, Something the length of a film is one thing, but a game that uh, people are going to be playing for hundreds of hours, it needs it needs a a, a lot of content, a lot of dynamism, and and breaks for you to um, like the film does, I guess. That there's uh, yeah, picking your moments basically. Mm-hmm. Um, the first big decision uh, in terms of how to deal with the music I made was that I, I didn't want to worry about uh, tempo syncing it, so. Uh, no sure. aspect of the score is tempo synced. Wow. Except for maybe like 5% of little sort of like the, the front end main theme and a couple other little themes here and there. But the the huge bulk of the music is all about layers and like waves of content as opposed to, uh, you know, um, beats and measures and stuff. So uh, that's good and that's bad for for a number of reasons. The, the great thing is that that let us become really fluid in... Uh, in how the music plays and what music is playing. So for example, at any given time when you're in the middle of a game, there'll be about eight independent layers of music playing with mm-hmm. controls and things that are informing how loud they are and what filters are happening to them, that kind of stuff that are completely independent of those other eight layers. So each one of those layers is doing its own thing and has a purpose. Like one is sort of indicative of fear. Another is um, telling you like how much health you and your teammates have uh, mm. another one is like a how long it's been uh since you were in a dangerous situation and because we got the uh the luxury of not having to sync that to, to tempo and and in a sense to melody because it's uh uh you know the the tonal stuff just layers beautifully because we've got these big waves of like distorted tape noise and and mm. uh you know pigs run through modular synthesizers and stuff like that and the great thing is it just it it yeah it's awesome in terms of layering it it can swell and rise up and and dissipate in beautiful ways um the flip side of that coin is that you have to be careful not to let it become as extreme as it is in terms of the sound you don't want it to be wallpaper because it's you know because it's tonal and textural you don't want to get people feeling too comfortable with it so i made sure that even though the the main energy is all about these waves of content and textural swells and things there's a lot of punctuation throughout it and uh certain events might trigger sudden really jarring heavy stings like they did in the film or if uh, a certain set of circumstances come together it'll play like a prescribed more traditional track for a little bit and then it'll drift back into the uh the ebb and flow of this textural fear like wave of sound basically so it's uh that approach was uh definitely it was it worked really well for us like um i think it's it's very unique you don't get that a lot in in um game soundtracks like being so sort of open-ended and yeah 
uh, unstructured uh and the 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 software just isn't really designed for that so we had to sort of mm. build our own systems and our own sort of connective tissue to really? to, to get all that information uh from what the player is doing into this like avant-garde wave of sound because uh oh, yeah because okay. it needs it needs at the same time it needs to be representative of what's going on in the game we we don't just have a big wash of noise because that's right. meaningless if it's not connected to the events that are happening so it was a challenge but uh super happy with the results i think it's um yeah. it's something pretty much unlike any game i've heard i think in terms of the approach and and the feel of it when you play it so it's uh it's it's very sort of it's vibrant it's got it's got a it's got animalistic energy to it which is really cool yeah well i mean you know you've referenced a couple times that you did use actual animal sounds, but you also, yeah. you know, you recorded yourself a lot. Um, this, you started working on this uh, during lockdown, right? So you just, yeah. you were able to create kind of your own found sound library. Will you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it was really, it, the the music came down to um, learning uh, the language and then finding the the ingredients and the ingredients needed to be perfect uh and uh Wes was really instrumental in in the early days of this when we were I th- like Wes had touched on before I think uh my initial experiments I was kind of leaning on my previous experience and and uh I was doing some stuff that sounded fine but it was kind of leaning on my uh uh knowledge of like industrial music and things like that and in retrospect it, it wasn't right at all so it took us mm. a few iterations to start figuring out what the what those ingredients need to be uh we had to get uncomfortable exactly yeah (laughs) and um so uh uh wes's apprehension engine which i'm I'm sure he'll tell you more about in a bit that that became uh that was really the um the starting point i think of of the the language of it so that gave us this this unique uh sort of secret source element mm-hmm. which we could just use that nobody else really uses in games and was the beginning of of this this language that that would develop over time so on top of that during lockdown um i was just going around the house and scraping and shaking and <laughs> just taking <laughs> salad spoons to to, to to windows and just <laughs> anything and everything most of it was terrible some of it was awesome i remember him and, messaging me going i found this really awesome old door that has a shitty hinge on it you gotta listen to this and i'm like okay um yeah it's the the weird conversations in the wee hours between uh, two horror nerds trying to find a sound in Texas, um, yeah, in, a, in the middle of a pandemic when we're locked at you know locked at home, so you're just like right. looking around you, going, "What can I do?" You know. Yep. yep. So, um, the um, the uh, modular uh, stuff really. Uh, I mean, all the crazy blinky lights behind me at the beginning of lockdown, none of that was there, and it just grew oh, and grew. Yeah. Like pretty pretty much everything I have there is is that I'll obsess about one thing that that could be really useful for Texas Chainsaw soundtrack, and I'll get it and I'll use it, and then I start obsessing about the next thing, and it's grown and grown. <laughs> But uh, so I, I used that system to um, I put um, like time stretch screams into it and pigs and wow. metal and chickens and and um, like I say that stuff is so once it comes out the other end and you run it through like tape saturation and vintage distortion and mm-hmm. um, reel to reel effects and stuff like that it just it layers beautifully and and yeah. the content was was so so usable and uh, that then combined with the appreh- apprehension engine really that that became something quite special. 
Yeah, I, I really, really want to know about, you know, both of you, your love for horror, how that started, and we'll get to that in a minute, but I, I we have to talk about the apprehension engine, because people <laughs> who have never heard about it are like, what the hell are you people talking about? Sure. Um, so, Wes, it's your baby, I mean, or became your baby, so, yeah. so uh, tell us about it and what it is. Again, Ross and I were very early, you know, pen to paper was just occurring on the design of what is Texas, and... So he and I were already kicking things around about sound and talking about it. And so I know we both kind of had our own homework uh, trying to, to discover what we wanted this thing to sound like. And one night, I am uh, I get my laundry out of the dryer <laughs> and I'm, I need to fold laundry. And so I, I put on a movie and I put on uh, Robert Eggers' The Witch. And okay. But where I fold laundry, my back is to the television, right? So I'm folding laundry. So now I'm just hearing the movie mm-hmm. as I'm mm-hmm. folding and doing chores and stuff. And there's this sound starts coming out of this movie that I've seen that movie before. And for whatever reason, I wasn't tuned in the same way. And when I when I was able to hear it and not watch it, I go, there's something different going on in the soundtrack. And so I go to Google and I type in soundtrack. Who did this? You know, mm-hmm. oh, it's Mark Corvin. Okay. Who is this Mark Corvin person? And I start yeah. looking at like the music he's created. And I start going down the the wormhole of all the different things. And then suddenly I discover this video of a contraption that he and a luthier, a person who makes, you know, uh, guitars for a living, his name's Tony Dugan Smith. The two of them created this contraption known as the apprehension engine that he specifically asked for, for the film, The Witch. And I'm like, that's how this sounds this way is because he's playing this specific thing. And so I'm watching this YouTube video of him sort of explaining what this thing can do. Um, and I'm like, man, there's something here. Uh, I think this this might be, uh, we need to explore this. And so I sent the video to Ross and was like, check this thing out. And he was like, oh my gosh, this thing is amazing. How do we get our hands on one? And I'm like, I don't know. And so <laughs> back to Google, right? And I find yep. the, the luthier, his little shop online, and I send him an email. And he says, hey, Wes, uh, let's set up a call. So I get on the call and I'm like, do you mind to sign the NDA? He's like, sure. So he signs an NDA and I go, okay. We're making Texas Chainsaw Massacre video game. Video game. He's like, oh, I love the film. I'm like, did you <laughs> nice. know the sound I'm after? He's like, I know exactly the sound you're after. Awesome. I'm like, can you build me a custom one of these that will sound like the sounds I'm trying to get? He's like, 100%, I can do it. Amazing. I'm like, all right, how much time do you need? And it was, you know, I don't remember the exact time. Yeah. But the budget was right. The time was right. And now we just kind of had to sit and wait for this thing to come in. So months down the road, I finally, I finally get it. And... um so I message, or he messaged me, hey, Wes, I saw the tracking. You should have it now. I go, yeah, I have it. I've just t- opened it up. It's amazing. What do I do? Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, oh, um, well, you, here's the cell phone to Mark Corvin. Give him a call. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. I'm like, does he know I'm going to call? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've already told him. He knows the people who buy these things. Like he's okay. on the same sort of list. He's aware because he's co-creator in, sure. in this in this device. So give him a call. So I call him. He's like, hey, Wes, yeah, I've been expecting your call. Super nice guy, right? Yeah. And just we're just sort of talking shop. And he's like, are you a musician? I'm like, no. And he goes, that's excellent. And I go, what do you mean? <laughs> he's like, you're going to be able to play this better than a musician will. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, musicians approach it with music theory and they, they're going to fail because sure. this device requires you to explore it and discover the sounds from it. And he goes, the best piece of advice that I can give you is to approach it like a child. And I'm like, okay. 
And so I got off the phone with him and that's what I did. started hitting it with all kinds of stuff around the house and trying to push that thing and to get the sound that I wanted. You know, he gave me a couple little uh, ideas of uh, ways to, you know, connect it to an audio interface and get it fed into Ableton. And he kind of walked me through those steps, but the rest, he was like, you know, no one can teach you this and they shouldn't be. Uh, The instrument is about discovering. And that's what I set out during the pandemic to do was I stayed home. Obviously, we're all work from home. And yeah. I just started trying to tease sounds out of this. I would get something weird and I would send it to Ross. And I would go, is this weird enough? And he'd be like, it's pretty weird. <laughs> he'd be like, can you make weird. it do this? Can you get it like a groan instead of this? Can you make it do? And I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And I, wow. I tell you, who I feel the most sorry for is my wife. <laughs> because this thing, when you hear it, I had a, it was in my basement. And I yeah. had these big studio monitor, like, you know, speakers pushing... And yeah, I mean, my basement, my house sounded like a nightmare. And my wife worked, was obviously working from home as well. And she's trying to do Zoom meetings like this. God love her. She's a social worker. She's trying to like help people. Meanwhile, in the background, it's this, you know, straight nightmare fuel. And um, so, yeah, it was a a very interesting time, I think, in everyone's life. But when I was most excited about it was being able to pull something out that I'm like, this does, it sounds because it's coming from a real instrument, it didn't sound synthetic, you know? Right. Like there was something very real to the sound mm-hmm. and that felt very Texas Chainsaw. had the gifted hands of Ross to hand it to and say, can you make something of this? Can you weave us this horrendous like uh, blanket that mm-hmm. of, of some handy, this patchwork of stuff? And he's like, yeah, I can do that. And he yeah. did it. And it's, yeah. I'm, I'm so, I'm so excited that people get to hear it and, and experience it because it's one thing to just put in a soundtrack and just sit back and go, hmm, you know? Yeah. But when you're playing the game and all these things are happening to you and it's that one additional layer for immersion, um, it's pretty powerful. Yeah, there's so much uh, to remind you about organic things in in the film and mm-hmm. in the in the sound that you hear. And, and, you know, it does have that very kind of not normal, but not synthetic either sound yep. to it. Yeah, it's it's really cool. Ross, what's it like when you get, you know, someone just supplies you sound? Do you, how do you go about then like wrapping your brain around those sounds and working them into your ideas? It meant that I could take that. Uh, and because it's so unusual and, and so um, kind of elastic, you can do so much with it that it meant uh, there are times when the, 
you'll hear like the apprehension engine in the game in its in its rawest form. It's just literally I've mm. taken that and that's one of the layers in one of the tracks. Okay. Other times it's gone through uh, huge amounts of iterations of running through the modular uh, into like reel-to-reel simulations, uh, vintage distortions and vintage tape delays, things like that. Um, something that that stuck with me for, from the film was was the house itself in that the house is it's so dirty and so layered and just everything is on top of everything else. And it's over decorated and it's, it's like, um, makes you feel quite uncomfortable looking at all those, the bones and the stuff just stacked in piles everywhere. So I kind of wanted a little bit of that with the music. So Mm. I never felt bad about, um, taking say like early experiments with, with, uh, some of the sounds I would be working with, you know, down the line a little bit further. I think, well, that thing that, from before that was a little too crazy at that time. Maybe let's try layering that back in. So the the, the constant kind of almost obsessive like layering of, of things upon things to get it just uncomfortable and tense worked out really well. And it mm-hmm. felt like that was just kind of in line with the that that crazy deranged house. It's just <laughs> just felt somehow tied to it. So, um, but um, yeah. and, and uh, the the. The tools to, to to mangle things, uh, like everything else um, in this process, that that was uh, uh, a case of trial and error and just trying crazy things. And as time went on, I started to find a language for it. Some things worked, some things didn't. Um, like traditional distortions just didn't sound right. Uh, traditional mm. uh, delays, traditional reverbs. I kind of had to go through every tool I could find to eventually find ones that when I applied them, I was like, there we go. That's it. That's huh. the one that's Texas Chainsaw. So oh, cool. um, tape tape effects uh, became a primary focus really. So I've become somehow like a connoisseur of, of all kinds of different tape effects of every kind. And oh, cool. um, uh, like that's, ma- that's magnetic tape, like, right. Like recording tape, yeah. like, yeah, just yeah. manipulating that. And yeah. Um, I also have, I have a, a a beautiful device called a, a Make Noise Strager, which is like a funny little unit with um, little touch points all over it. Um, that they based it on um, uh, a chip from a karaoke machine, but it's <laughs> it's and then just brutalized it. And uh, it's not designed for you to really know. Kind of like with the apprehension engine, you, you, it's not designed for you to know how to use it correct correctly there is no correct way the first page of the manual says it's not important for you to know how to use this right <laughs> which i think is great uh, so, so those kind of tools these real obtuse yeah. fringe tools became very central another sure. one was i don't know if you can see it there's a little green box over here that's made by a few crazy guys in russia um it's um just a big metal box with a load of touch plates on the front and they mm. pass signals through your body. So the amount of moisture in your body, how yeah. hard you're pressing and the combination of things that you do while you're pressing them, um, it causes this like a unearthly scream. And that was a another uh, really, really interesting source. So all wow. of like the, the appreh- apprehension engine, the Soma, the Strager, the modular, they all become sort of... Um, uh, I mean, they're all amazing, but they'll become even greater than the sum of their parts, really, I think. Mm, that, sure. that nobody else is combining all of these things. So it just becomes really crazy. <laughs> like just, you know, grabbing a different paintbrush, right? To, yeah. Um, and you get, a, you get a different, you know, stroke or what have you on the, on the canvas and it all just creates, you know, this uh, hauntingly macabre 
image when we're done. Um, exactly. And I, I was just happy I, that I was able to throw a couple some paint at him a little bit. Like here, <laughs> yeah. keep doing, keep doing weird stuff. Like keep going, keep going. Um, yeah. That was the. Uh, did, and didn't you, Ross? Didn't you buy an actual reel to reel from like around that era, yeah. or did you find? Oh, yeah. you did uh, over there. Yeah. You can just about see it in the. Oh God! It's um, oh, funny. Uh, the important thing for me with that uh, was to spend a lot of time running stuff through it uh, and seeing how it handles extreme content. So, uh, and that's what I wanted from it, and that's what I got from it. So I learned that um, it can't handle hard transients very well in an interesting way, and okay. it sounds it sounds disgusting and beautiful when you hit it with really hard attack a really hard mm. attack of a like a modern uh distorted drum so that became uh part of the uh the the theme of the, the front end main menu of the game is the these hits that tape just can't handle so it just <sighs> kind of splats in, into, into it it's just <laughs> and it just because it it just couldn't the technically it couldn't handle it so yeah. and it sounds kind of beautiful in its own way when, when it fails to handle those those hard attacks so wow. that was a really good learning experience yeah, for sure. Uh, so, yeah, let's go back and and uncover where this obsession or maybe just love for horror comes from. I, I'm a huge true crime person, and I know that the line mm. is very thin between that and, like, watching a horror film. And for some reason, I just have hesitated my whole life to cross the line. So I'm, and I'm always fascinated. I love to read about horror films. I love to do everything but watch. So I'm like from the outside looking in, wondering how how you have this gene that makes you able to consume this this media. <laughs> well, I mean, I I would argue that it isn't that much. Like when you talk about a fine line between true crime and horror movies, I think there's actually it's a pretty wide gap between the two. And the yeah. biggest difference of that is obviously true crime is true. It's talking right. about real events happen to real people. Yeah. And horror movies, what is the exciting piece of that is the is the it's the illusion. It's a magic trick. You get to yeah. watch a magic trick hmm. unfold with drama and maybe some comedy mixed in for a quick laugh here and there. But it's the the tension, the release. But you still know that all none of this is real. So you can just lose yourself and time and everything in the moment of watching it and be scared for the moment and let, then let it go because you know it was all an illusion. If you yeah. turn off that crime podcast and you knew a serial killer just ripped through a bunch of people, a state away from you or whatever, and they never caught that person, yeah, I don't know. That's different to me compared to a Leatherface or a Jason Voorhees. Um, sure. That's that, that sounds actually terrifying where <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not scared of Freddy Krueger would you know, knives right. on his fingers. I'm like, eh, you know, like I know it's, that's all make-believe. So I can relish in those moments and knowing that it, you know, none of it's real at all. It is all make-believe. So how good are the people trying to fool me? How good is the performance, the script? Mm -hmm. How good was the practical effects supervisor and the stunt coordinators? And how good was the composer? Are they able yeah. to take all of these illusions and put it together in front of me and just for a moment, make me go, huh. you know, can they do that? Uh, and yeah. if they can, then I'm like, good job. Um, that's that's a, a master at their craft. Um, yeah. And so as a kid, I think it's a, it's a rite of passage to watch horror movies. Like I remember sitting around the cafeteria table as a youngster and 
people talking about, have you seen Halloween? Have you seen The Shining? Have you seen like mm-hmm. all these movies? And it was like, if you hadn't, then, you know, people laughed at you or you were seen as like a wuss or whatever it was. Yeah. And so it became like a rite of passage to say, sure, I've seen the new this, the new that. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you had an older sibling like I did, um, who was five years older than me, mm. she would, would be able to get her hands on those movies sure. and I would be able to watch them when I shouldn't have been able to watch them. <laughs> uh, and they definitely left a, left an impression with me and made me a lifelong uh, horror fan. But I do find mm. myself... Uh, I gravitate more towards some of the older horror uh, comparatively to maybe some of the more modern horror movies. Uh, there's still some modern horror movies I love, but I, I tend to keep going back to okay. the older ones because I think nostalgia is also a pretty powerful emotion mm-hmm. that that uh, that we we tried to try to wield that here too at Gun and and remind people of what these films meant and maybe even do you remember what you were like then when you saw it? Um, and then if it's mm-hmm. a new generation of people who this is the first time that they're going to experience Texas Chainsaw, we understand that responsibility. So we make sure we take that white glove approach and say, this is the right way to do this. Um, mm-hmm. So that when they then go discover the film, they're like, wow, I was just there. Like, it feels <laughs> like I was just in that thing. Well, you yeah. kind of were, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. Ross, what about you? Do you remember your first moments of horror? Yeah, yeah. I think um, uh, I I was lucky in that um, VHS was just sort of turning up in in the village I lived in when I was a little kid back in the early 80s. And um, our parents had a pretty sort of uh, uh, relaxed attitude towards um, the the, uh, <laughs> the age ratings that they should have been uh, paying attention to. So, so we would just rent, you know, like, Alien and and Texas Chainsaw and things like that and take them over to a friend's house and they would just leave us to happily sit there watching all these eighteen rated films as like <laughs> you know seven and eight year old kids and even though uh, they all gave me nightmares it became you know beginning of a lifelong love for all wow. of those franchises um, and yeah, same as Wes I think I just uh, they're almost like comfort films like uh, yeah I, I can put on. Uh, Friday the 13th or or Alien or or Nightmare on Elm Street or something just as as a nice treat to chill out on, on, on a Saturday <laughs> evening. Um I yeah. agree as well with the, the distinction between sort of real crime and um and horror because uh, uh yeah I could consider myself a very gentle person um and uh horrible things happening to real people it's incredibly upsetting and then yeah. leaves uh leaves a bad taste and and um it's uh yeah very stressful thing but for me um you know someone getting chainsawed in half or their legs hacksawed off in a in a horror film that's just it's just wonderful gory delightful and i become yeah, just you, like that you cheer right you start cheering yeah. you're like <laughs> the worst well i don't i don't know what yeah. they could do now like the, the the more disgustingly gory the better i love it <laughs> yeah yeah you know, it's like hot food i don't emily you like spicy food Nope, very Midwestern. Yeah, I'm telling you, man. I'm, no, I would I'm be saying such that, a disappointment. I'm, I'm just saying that people that enjoy um, spice also have their own levels to what they appreciate. Sure. And you mm-hmm. you, you you develop a palate where you can taste yep. the flavor and not necessarily the heat. The more of it that you introduce to the palate. Mm-hmm. I would argue horror is identical. There's some folks that just go, uh-uh, yep. I don't watch any form of horror. It mm-hmm. gives me nightmares. Just like people who say, I won't try anything that's, quote, spicy because maybe it upsets my stomach or yeah. I don't like like hot flavor in my mouth or whatever. 
And that's fine too. But there's actually there's a lot of nuance to spice level, just like yep. there's a lot of nuance to horror. And once you get into it, you realize there's subgenres of subgenres within horror. Yeah. And you can sort of find that groove that you're like, this is a this is the kind of films I loved. This this resonates with me. This has the right amount of spice. Sure. You know, like yeah, yeah. I can taste the flavor instead of just being on fire. Um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to gravitate towards some of the more weird and um a lot of giallo from the 60s, 70s, and 80s okay. in Italy, Argento, whatnot. Uh, those things are a lot of style over substance, but that's okay with me. Um, mm-hmm. And it sounds like Ross likes a lot of like uh, cutting people up and a lot of gore and stuff. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Which there's, to be fair, not a lot of in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, there is, of course, but... Well, um, there's only one scene where the chainsaw actually... Uh, severs flesh. Do you know what scene it is? Are you talking to me? Is it the mm-hmm. the wheelchair one, right? Mm-mm. No, you never see the you never see the it go into body. You never see. Oh, is it when he cuts the, his leg? He cuts his right. Yeah, the, when his the leg antagonist. Gets cut. Yep, he falls and it slices his leg. It's the only time you see the saw actually wow. cut skin. But Didn't when you ask someone who saw that film years ago, they're like, "Oh my gosh, it's the most gory." The most oh, bloody. Yeah, it's really. And you're like, not. no, it's not. Yeah, it's really. You know, it all happens off camera, and your uh-huh. brain is filling that gap. And there is no one more powerful than your own brain, right? In terms of like coming yep. up with what you thought you saw in that. Yeah. You know, there's no director that can do that. You know what I mean? Right. Oh, amazing. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, yeah. I mean, I feel like we could talk about the psychology of why I can handle true crime and not horror. It's, it's amazing. That, you need to start a separate co- podcast and <laughs> just focus on... Exactly. Yeah, right, right. I'm always joking with Jason Graves, who did the music for Dead Space, which mm. is, you know, one of the... I worked I mean, with Jason on Friday 13th. Oh, you did? Like he's, oh, yeah, he's see, a good friend. Yeah, I've been, he's a been good to his friend house. Of mine too. He's got a. Yep, yep. Have you ever seen the piano he has under his stairs? Yes. Well, it's gone now because they moved. I don't think he moved. has it anymore. That's right. Yeah, I don't. I don't think he's he like. I found that in some woods, and I'm like, yeah. you have my attention. You know, it's like <laughs> got moss in it. And it's all gross, <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, dude, we're like brothers from another mother or something. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But oh, I mean, I think I made it 17 minutes into Dead Space before I was like, nope. And that was many years ago, and so mm. now I'm considering playing the that they remade that. Um, because that got such high high ratings. Such but, a great name to be someone who composes horror. <laughs> such good Jason horror Graves. Music. Jason You're like Graves. you jerk. I know. Great jazz. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, but you know, Jason is a guy who's made a, a very successful career for himself, staying in his home state, just as you have, mm-hmm. Wes, and mm-hmm. and you too, to a certain extent, Ross. You know, a lot of times especially about a decade ago, I just assumed, well, if I want to do anything in the gaming industry, which I consider myself to do, I would have to move to LA or Seattle or whatever. And no, I'm pretty happy in Minneapolis. Um, you're happy in Kentucky, Wes. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where you live, Ross, but I know it's not LA, right? I mean, you live in the UK uh, somewhere. Nothing yeah, beautiful. So, I mean, what what made you guys stay and uh, uh, just build your career where where you are now? Ross, you go first. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, the as we all know, the world is very different now than it was uh, three or four years ago. When, very true. Uh, I mean, it's not so true as the composer side of my um, 
career. But in terms of sound designers, it was very rare for sound designers to work anywhere other than in the office, in like a little, you know, hive of, of sound design offices in the darkened corners of the office somewhere. <laughs> uh, with composers, obviously, because of, you know, all the specialist equipment and things, um, and the fact that a lot of game composers are freelancers rather than in-house is, is I'm sure you know, comparatively rare mm-hmm. um, for in, unless you've got constant flow of work, say like you know, GTA or Cyberpunk or something like that, where um, yeah. there's enough constant work day to day to keep going. Um, but I mean, yeah, I, there was a point where I presumed I would maybe need to move to to LA um, at some point in my career, but it's remote work is is well as as we found out with this game because we we. we um, as COVID hit, we were really just in the very early stages of this game. And uh, my my studio here in Nottingham, we we obviously we had to go and work from home, and uh, they were really concerned about what it was what that was going to be like. But um, while I do miss uh, you know chatting to people in an office, so, yeah, I'm talking to people all day long. Uh, yeah. Uh, Wes and I will talk, or I've got the um, there's a couple guys on my audio team, so I'll give them stuff to do and we'll discuss ideas and things. So it doesn't feel disconnected in any way. And I get to be surrounded by all my weird instruments with my cat, <laughs> cat on my lap, nice. a cup of coffee. It's, it's a, uh, it's a good life. <laughs> Is the cat there right now? Uh, <laughs> yes, but he's inaccessible right now. Okay, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Do he's, not he's, disturb he's the sleeping wires cat. underneath my yeah. feet. <laughs> if he comes out, I'll grab him. Okay, please do. Yeah, mine is sleeping on the other side of one of these boards as well. So yeah, um, how about you, Wes? <laughs> well, for me, it was it goes all the way back to college, where I was uh, definitely interested in video games, how video games were made. Um, even the journalism around video games, just that whole industry was fascinating to me. But everywhere I looked, um, when I was in college, there was, there was nothing really here. Uh, and so I had the same mentality. I thought I had to move. Mm -hmm. Um, but while still in college, I came up with this idea of, uh, putting a, a brand inside a virtual world known as Second Life. Um, Second Life was sort of in its infancy at that time. This would have been like 2005 four or five. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. And so I, I did that. I put American Apparel in Second Life and it was wildly successful. And it was in, um, I was in Forbes and Ad Age and like all these different uh, mm-hmm. publications that focus on like interesting advertising ideas. And I didn't even really have a company formed per se. Like they, they wrote me a check to do the job and it was more money than I'd ever seen because I was Again, I was in college. Yeah, wow. But it sort of shot me in this this trajectory towards like mm-hmm. becoming an entrepreneur. That it, I didn't really think that was in that that's what I was going to do. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to do games, mm-hmm. and um, I, I moved that into doing a lot of consulting for both advertisers and games. And then it just became games, and so all the studios were flying. Uh, this time, I started putting together a smaller team. We had there's about five or six of us. And we were bouncing from studio to studio playing AAA games and telling them how to make them better or what they should remove or how to add, you know, more gameplay or, you know, just coming up with those kind of ideas. And it started teaching me about game design and what does it take to develop a game? And so I did that for five years and then decided I want to take that wealth of information and go make my own game. And so, uh, yeah, I kicked, started the gun at that point, gun interactive and, 
uh, just kind of never looked back and stayed in Lexington and thought maybe one day that, you know, 20 something version of me that's at a school here in University of Kentucky may look around and go, I don't have to move. Uh, There is a game studio here. Or maybe they want to start something like a, an animation place that does motion capture or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they they maybe don't. We don't have to have that brain drain that occurs in a lot of smaller cities like Lexington that still has a great university scene, but then everyone leaves. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I I kind of chose the uh, life on hard mode because it would have been <laughs> way easier had I moved to you know the mm-hmm. West Coast and and started all this. Um, yeah especially acquiring talent and getting folks to want to come, come join is, is a big mm-hmm. ask. Um, yeah, sure. But uh, so far it's, it's worked out for us and um, yeah, I'll probably keep, I'll probably stay here. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I like it here. My family's here. My roots are here. Yep. It's a good place to live. Yep. And is that where you grew up too, Ross? Nottingham? Uh, no, no. I'm, okay. I'm from the, the South of the UK from Cornwall. Funny okay. little, um, little Celtic outpost where we have our own language and stuff. Okay. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I mean, that there's the possibility to move around the UK now. And uh, I kind of feel I'll probably stay in the UK with this change in the industry now, like th- mm-hmm. that uh, long plan of, I, I guess I'll eventually move to, to Santa Monica or something. Uh, it's too far from family and stuff. So mm-hmm. it's not necessity anymore. So I think I'll probably yeah. always be in the UK now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's get back to the game and the sound. I know I've had you on on for a while here, but uh, we got to talk about the chainsaw itself because that is awesome that you found a chainsaw from then and talk about that. And again, this to me speaks to your like white glove approach, your dedication mm. to it being really authentic. Um, yeah. Talk about the chainsaw. I'll start with sourcing it and capturing it and then... <laughs> How we had this, what, what we handed to Ross that he had to okay. turn into something that was workable. So, <laughs> um, yeah, we we sourced uh, three uh, of the of the saws, same make, model, year, um, and that Poulon, is what. Tell us what that a, is. A, it's a Poulon two four six A, uh, and or I'm sorry, two four five A and a three oh six. They use two different okay. saws in the movie for different scenes. Sometimes it was for the sound of what one sounded like if they needed a scene where he was maybe running or it was wide open where other times for carrying around or showing in the hand, it may have been uh, a different saw. So okay. they sort of jockeyed between the two. Um, so that already is a issue of, of authenticity for us is like, well, which <laughs> one are right. we su- supposed to choose? Um, and so that was a lot of back and forth with Kim Hinkle and talking a little bit to Wayne as well, Wayne Bell. And everyone kind of had different stories, to be honest with you. It was difficult to like narrow down what to do here. So we just got both of them. Nice. And then you had to source a person that knew how to fix them because right. the ones, when you buy a 50 plus year old chainsaw, it doesn't run. No. <laughs> and so you have to find someone that knows how to work on 50 year old chainsaws. Amazing. And it, you know, which luckily we live in Kentucky. Yeah. And so it's not hard to find a good old boy that's like, yeah, I used to work on those before. I know how to work on those. You know, it, the guy that's working on it is, you know, literally like late 60s, early 70s. Like, oh yeah, I haven't, you know, fired one of these things up in 30 years, but I know how to work one. Right. And he goes, but the harder thing is going to be sourcing parts because, wow, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, and so he's having to help us find e- e- like eBay people selling like, 
broken versions of the chainsaw that we are wow. Frankensteining. Like we're buying that saw and ripping that thing off to put on the... <laughs> and so we do all of that and we finally get, you know, three running saws. Wow. And then I'm like, well, how are we going to capture this? Like, it's loud. Chainsaws right. are loud. Yep. So I'm thinking, I'm like, well, who do I know that can capture loud sounds? And I'm like, well, wait a second. I was like, my friend Watson Wu, who's a known, you know, recording artist for video games, he's done, you know, Forza and a, a ton of racing games, a ton of shooter games, Call of Duty, Battlefield, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. It, these, are, these are two very loud genres that he is good yeah. at. R racing games and shooting games where he captures gunshots. And I'm like, he's got to have the right, you know, tech for this. So I call him and I'm like, so we're doing Texas Chainsaw. Do you want to record some chainsaws? He was like, I can't say I've ever had anyone ask me that one. He was like, <laughs> but I'm in, let's go. And so he gets on a plane, flies here to Kentucky where we have the saws and um, we got access to a horse farm because why not? We live in Lexington, of course. <laughs> and they give us an area with no horses in it and we set up in that field and we spend two days with Watson uh, capturing the sound of even the saw not running, just sort of the, the handling of it, sort of the color that comes mm -hmm. from like touching and handling the saw. Uh, to you know, rev, half speed, full speed, running, walking, inside, outside. I mean, all the different mm -hmm. uh, ways you can use that that saw. Uh, that's what we did. And uh, it was hot. Um, <laughs> we sweat. We sweated a lot. A lot of bugs. It felt sort of like being there in the film. Sure. Because if you ever read some of the behind the scenes of that movie, um, it was pretty uh, brutal. The 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 heat and the oh, okay. Um, yeah, so we dealt with some of that, nowhere near as bad as they had it, but still <laughs> humid and hot. And yeah. uh, But we got it. We got all the shots. And so we handed over uh, a mountain of data to to Ross. And we said, good luck, buddy. It's got to sound like the movie. We'll see you later, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing that amazed me, because I, I definitely want your reaction here, Ross, but the thing that amazed me was, um, you know, the video of the, the guy, literally, it's the chainsaw's not running, but he's running with the chainsaw, which happens yeah. in the film. And you hear all the sound of his clothes and the clanking and the actual which of course you could have just added that all after right i mean you could have yeah. you could have done it that way and you didn't which is really cool and um <laughs> it just it really does i mean sound is so essential to making it feel real so i i love that you guys yeah. did that that way but yeah ross tell me tell me your reactions to to that <laughs> <laughs> well it was cool i mean um they did an amazing job they got a huge amount of of that in insanely authentic source material. Um, yeah. So then, like Wes said, I'm, I'm looking at a mountain of great recordings, but I now have to take this and make it a live chainsaw in some way, uh, which is, is very, very difficult. It's been by far, in a way, the most difficult, mm. challenging, but exciting part of the project is getting this, this chainsaw sounding awesome. The first big decision I had to make was as a fork in the road for how I'm going to approach it as a sound designer. Um, I can like bake everything and just make, uh, like pick nice bits and, you know, do a little bit of mastering clean up on them and just have it so that when this happens, uh, it just plays this linear sequence of sound 
or I can go for the insanely difficult, horrific route of genuinely trying to recreate an engine as you would a car. Um, so I went for that way, <laughs> uh, which, which is, uh, um, I, I don't regret whatsoever. Mm. Uh, I, I looked at every game I could find that involved a chainsaw. Um, and normally, I, I mean, normally chainsaws don't feature quite as much as they do in our game. But for all of those other games, uh, it would just be a little bait sequence. You know, they would, uh, it would be ram, 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 yeah. ram, ram. And you'd, you'd, get, <laughs> yeah. you'd get very, it, it would get very tiring very quickly. And yeah, anybody that understands sound would know what they're listening to. So I thought, no, we've got to, we've got to, you know, make this so that if you're you're revving it, you feel like you're revving it, like you know, you get that tactile, yeah. visceral sense of revving a chainsaw. Um, I was lucky enough to just before we were working on this project for Suma Nottingham, us we were helping out on um, uh, Forza, so we spent a lot of time with the Forza guys learning about uh, how to replicate engine sounds and uh, how mm. to get the best possible. Uh, realistic, like smooth acceleration on RPM curves up your assets and things like that. So, so we applied those learnings. Um, it's still difficult, and in the end, it does come down to a certain amount of just working by ear, just just tuning things and getting it right. And um, I think uh, for Wes and I, this this has been the, the the part of the the whole process that we've had to just keep going back to because the saw's got to be perfect. It's the Texas Chainsaw yeah. Massacre. Um, and, I mean, that's where uh, that obsessiveness but, comes in, right? We, you, I've heard you guys say obsessive a few times, and I'm like, that's an understatement <laughs> for yeah. for this for us anyway. Like <laughs> Ross and I both are like, mm, yeah. Uh, yeah, we are obsessing over what this is supposed to sound like. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll be sort of eating my, my breakfast in the morning thinking, you know what I could do? Mm. <laughs> I could maybe put some distortion on the mid-range. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's, I think about it all day, every day. And uh, yeah, it's... it's even when you think of I'm, the range of that saw, it's like, oh man, when you when you hit the, you know, the trigger and it gets up from zero to, to you know, 60%, I was like, it sounds amazing. 60 to 65, something's going wrong. And after that, it gets awesome again. I'm like, we got to find that spot. What's going on in here? You know, and yeah. I'm sure Ross is like, you know, you're right. I, I know it's there. I can't find it. You know, that kind of thing. So we're, we're definitely always uh, tuning that and making sure it's as perfect as yeah. we can get it. Mm-hmm. It's cool. For, for um, the more cinematic moments in the game, um, uh, like executions, which obviously is a big part of like, you finally, uh, catch up with the uh, the victims and and then obviously you're rewarded with really cool execution like cinematic moment those ones uh that's i mean easier i mean i guess because then i've got the whole spectrum of all the stuff that that wears and um uh what's been recorded so that i i can just go through find a specific moment from those recordings that just fits the uh, the hits and swipes and things like that mm-hmm. and just just do a little bit of you know slight distortion tape effects clean up stuff like that but um so those cinematic moments are it's a pleasure because i can go through and find the exact right one and then it 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 just sounds awesome but um it's yeah it's the live chainsaw that's 
that's been a, a beast to do, but totally worth it. <laughs> when you run around as, as Leatherface in the game and you're you're feathering the chainsaw with your controller, yeah. you just feel the, the haptic vibration and you hear it, rum, rum, rum. And you can see that you're scaring people by doing it, which is wonderful. <laughs> they're, they're trying to do something meaningful in the game. They, they have like a task they have to achieve. And you can just make them panic and run away just by revving the chainsaw, which is... I mean, it's true. I mean, Leatherface yeah, is so a bit cool. of a dispersal agent when it comes to <laughs> yeah. you know, the design of that. And you need that. You need that in a game like this. Uh, mm-hmm. Any asymmetric game, it's it's part of that core design is you're supposed to assign the one side like somewhat meaning, uh, meaningless-ish task, like easy to do task. Like it would be super easy if you were not stressed to do it. You know, insert <laughs> yeah. wire A into this thing. <laughs> yeah. Super easy to do. But whenever you're starting to do that and you hear, <laughs> and the saw starts up, <laughs> you you're you're doing this with the wire. <laughs> you know, yeah, you, yeah. You, it's impossible to stay focused when you have that mm-hmm. sound, and that's on Rosh's shoulders. He knows it because he's seen that real time feedback when we're playing the, you yeah, know, the prototypes yeah. and stuff moving through the um, the development of the game. He he knows the consequences of if that doesn't sound good, mm-hmm. you know, they're escaping. Like it's yeah. breaking the design. Like you have we have to keep pushing that uh, to to truly make. You know, Leatherface, mm-hmm. a a feared opponent. Whenever you hear him, mm-hmm. and when you see him, both of those things, you you, you need to have a a visceral reaction uh, when they're around. Um, it's yeah, it's key definitely. to the to the design. I've spent um, uh, over two years. I've been constantly tuning the. Um, uh, you know, the things that obstruct and block the sound, uh, the passageway of the the sound of the chainsaw through the house, and mm-hmm. because. If Leatherface is close, you need to know that. And uh, if a door's just opened and Leatherface is on the other side with the chainsaw, you need to know that. So um, conversely, though, the chainsaws, it's a hefty sound. And there were points where I went over the top and you anywhere in the map all the time, you could hear a little bit of chainsaw. Oh, and that wow. was clearly too much. What we've got now is this really, really nice balance that mm. if he's anywhere that you need to know about it in the next minute, you're probably going to hear that chainsaw, whether he's two floors up or if he's 300 meters away in a field. The that that uh, sort of bubble of threat is is very tuned now. So mm. you can be starting to work on the little task that you need to do, and you hear like, bum, 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 bum. You're like no, 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 and then you can feel yourself trying not to panic. So that's yeah. that's what we're trying to do. It's a mixture of feedback and the horror element of you know that he's coming, and you really do know that he's coming now, which is really cool. And you do get to play as him, which is cool, right? Yeah. So talk about that, letting, letting like, because, you know, you could just assume, is it Sally? Is that her name? The, the In the film. In our the game film? takes place a few months before. Okay. So our game actually is the lead up to the movie. Yeah. Oh, okay. Very cool. So it could, you know, you could have been like just a character, right? But mm. that's not the case. Talk about that, Wes, if you would. Well, um, you know, when you look at the, at that film, you know, it's a, it's a film about a misunderstood family, first of all. Okay. Like people want to vilify <laughs> you them. Being serious. I'm, okay. I'm being serious. Okay. Like okay. this, okay. this town was a, a bustling town at one point and, yeah. uh, the slaughterhouse closed, which was the major, you know, uh, job, mm-hmm. uh, provider in the town. It dries up. People move away to people that stay, they got to get creative. Yeah. Okay. And they got to find sometimes alternate sources of food. And, they weren't going out and leaving their property and hurting people. No, was, but if you stepped on their property, they, they're going to make chili out, out of you. Okay, it was wow, right? Yeah. So when you think about 
that it's not that you know they're not that bad of of, of a group of individuals, but okay. nonetheless, you still got to have a protagonist and antagonist in the in the in a game, right? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, we knew that from the start, right off the rip, people want to play as Leatherface. You know, we saw it when we got the rights to Friday the 13th. We knew everybody wants to be Jason. Like, we knew that was like, <laughs> you know, it's the power trip. It's the ultimate power trip. Yeah. So we knew that for a fact. Like, okay, you know, check mark. We know people are going to want to play Leatherface, but that's not what made this film what this film was. It's not just about Leatherface. It's about the full dynamic of that family, the cook and the hitchhiker, all three yeah. of them together. Um who's at the top of the food chain, so to speak, or at least who who rules the roost and, and then down, you know, like mm-hmm. what are the roles of those individuals in the film? And are we able to uh, relay that into the game in a meaningful way that makes fun gameplay? Are we able to do that? And I would argue we did. Uh, we did a great job of, you know, the, the cook does this thing while the hitchhiker is doing something else. And they all sort of match the personality um, of those characters as they were seen in the movie. It makes sense. Like the, the one-to-one makes, makes sense. Um, so yeah, I mean, it is, it is a power trip to run around as, as Leatherface, but I think the more you're playing with, with the other family members, the more you start to, uh, see the different ways that you can play the game and not know, it's not just, you know, running around with a saw, <laughs> trying to kill people. It's like, well, you could choose this other character that does stuff completely differently Hmm. that can even match a different game style that maybe you like. Maybe you're not into big, loud, boisterous type of 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 uh, an antagonist. Maybe you Mm -hmm. would prefer a slicker, quieter, stealthier, you know, personal, up-close killer. You know, like that's what (laughs) you would prefer to do. Mm -hmm. You can have those options, you know, to, to pick from in the family and you can sort of see them and feel them uh, from the characters in the game, and then the fact that we got to work with Kim Hinkle to create two new family members uh, was wow. an, an awesome privilege to get to do because it was between our creative director Ronnie Hobbs and Kim Hinkle, the you know the original, um, the, the two of them setting down literally on his back porch, pop open Lone Star beer, drink beers, pen and paper, and start writing. Who are these two new characters? Cool, um, and that's pretty cool that we get to do that because you're now yeah. touching canon and you're changing canon the candidate of Texas Chainsaw forever. Um, yeah. That's pretty cool. That's very cool. Um, before we go, because I know, again, I've taken up enough of your time today. I'm very grateful for it. Um, I, I would love to know a little bit about the music that uh, you did with Jim Bonney, if, if that's all right, if we uh, sure. talk about that. Of course, I'm familiar with Jim from Bioshock was my first... Uh, and you know my first musical encounter with Jim mm-hmm. Bonney. So, um, so talk a little bit about about that because that music is, sure. is cool too. Sure. Um, well, with with Jim, I I reached out to him because I I was actually it, it was part of that story. I kind of led into this with um, that the town around Austin, Texas, where the film takes place. Uh, you know, Kim Hinkle wrote that that town to been. In the 50s, 60s, it was a bustling little place, a little small rural town, but still had like mm-hmm. an economy and people. Yeah. And people yeah. were happy and you went to football games and there was potlucks and, you know, the things you find in a rural America. Mm-hmm. And then it all went away. Uh, the slaughterhouse closed and it dried up the the economy. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was, uh, it was fascinating to talk to Kim about that and, and talked about what, where that came from for him and 
uh, the things he was looking at and reading about in the news, gas shortages and stuff around the time. Um, mm-hmm. It was just all a, a very fascinating discussion. It was like, wow, if none of that had happened, would we have had you know, the slaughter family, this group of cannibals, would that have even happened? Um, so are they victims to this or, I mean, obviously they had, there's a screw loose, right? Like we're not, I'm not saying they're, in, they're innocent, but like yeah, yeah. there was something going, there was something that's, that's fascinating to me. And so we, I started talking about that and um, got introduced to Jim and, and was like, what if we made this separate album? Like this, we made this thing. We kind of told the story sonically about this town that fell and they're the, and the, and the slaughter family is the byproduct of that which is sort of the genesis of the game and the and the game is the genesis to the film. So this sort of lock and step made a lot of sense um, to do that. And I wanted to push, how can we take the apprehension engine and make things that are more melodic, things that have a rhythm, things that you can sort of tap a toe to? Like, yeah. how can we do that? And, and that became our 18-month or so challenge uh, Jim and I and sitting down and punching out tracks um, for that album, which we named Remains. Um, mm-hmm. Just like the family is the the ones that remain from the town falling and so on and so forth. But um, And then that's going to be weaved into um, the game as well, which is uh, going to be, a, I think, a cool addition that people are going to appreciate. But we'll be able to have those, also those two soundtracks, um, you know, bundled together awesome. uh, for people to to purchase. So yeah, it was a, it was a very interesting um, exercise that led to something that I was very proud of after the fact. Um, I was listening to a lot of the, this sort of genre known as desert rock, um, okay. which bands like earth and Caius and uh, I think Barnell, it's kind of more, a little more industrial version of that, but um, still several bands that I was listening to a lot of that. I enjoyed their sound that I wasn't hearing a lot of stuff like that today. And so I got heavily inspired by that while also the stuff that Ross was already producing for us in the game. I was like, man, if you could, if we could take this stuff that's being made and like just push that into the realm of something that had a little bit of the rhythm to it, you know, like there's something really weird and fun and there's not enough of music like this. Like we should, we should chase this down. But obviously Ross was also inundated with, you know, dude, I'm making a game. And I'm like, I know, I know. You know so, um, you know, hence uh, connecting up with Jim and and also pushing that we wanted every single thing on the remains to be real, real instruments, you know, the, yes. the human side of that. Like um, I wanted all the error of that. I wanted a real drummer. Uh, and everything yeah. is so slow. The album is so incredibly slow. Mm-hmm. And finding a drummer that can do that, um, mm-hmm. that, to anyone who doesn't play drums may go, what do you mean it's easy? You know, they think the the big fast frills are the hard thing. No, 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 no. Like try, trying to keep, you know, a, a you know, 35 beats per minute, you know, sort of, of, of count is yeah. incredibly hard to do. Um, yeah. And it sound clean and good and not stumbling on itself or whatever. Like mm-hmm. uh, that was a big challenge to, to locate the musicians to, uh, play the way we wanted to play to make the unique sound of of that album that um, again is is inspired by the film. It's inspired by Ross's work. It's inspired by the desert rock scene that sort of died out in the probably early two thousands. And mm. 
um, yeah, I just, I, I found myself in a place obviously during the pandemic that, um, I guess I, I, I had more creative juices than I normally have. And I was wanting to focus it in on something else yeah. that was, I felt like continued to paint this bigger picture that was a uh, Texas chainsaw. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love, um, all the noise that's in there from the guitars, right? Right. Like mm. just all the, you just hear the amp noise and the pedal noise and it oh, yeah. just, it brings life. It, I think, you know, it just, mm -hmm. it really breathes along with the, uh, chords and other sounds that are being made. It's really effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Well, uh, Wes and Ross, anything else you want to add? I know we've talked a while now, but if there's something you wish I would have said or, or asked about, now's, now's your chance. <laughs> Ross, you got anything? I don't think so. Um, I'm just, I, I'm unbelievably proud uh, and excited for people to experience this. Like, yeah, I've been doing this 20 years and this this has become... I don't know, this project more than any other has just become a, a real work of passion for me. And I hope that shines through and I hope people enjoy it as much as I think they will. Um, anybody has any questions um, about techniques or wants to talk about it, just find me on social media. I, I love discussing what I do. So uh, never feel shy about asking me anything if anybody awesome. wants more information. <laughs> That's very true about Ross. He's very giving of his time, his energy, his skill set. Um, and I'm thankful that just as a, a guy who runs a studio and I've got my hands in all parts of the game and I'm always like kind of getting pulled in a bunch of different directions mm -hmm. to be able to slow down and work with uh, someone like Ross, someone like Jim, people that are at the absolute top of their game, uh, experts at uh, sonically scaring the shit out of people <laughs> or creating something that's hauntingly beautiful. Like yeah. to be able to even just sort of, you know, dance with them for a little while and make something that you're both proud of. Uh, it means a lot to me to be able to do it. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to people finally getting to hear the full nightmare that Ross created. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. It comes out this year, 2023. So mm -hmm. can't wait. And thank you both so much for your time today. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, thank you. It's been amazing. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Level with Emily. You can learn more about Wes Keltner and Ross Tregenza, see a playlist, and support Level with Emily at patreon.com slash level. Check out the video of my chat with Wes and Ross on the Level with Emily YouTube channel. Please subscribe and make sure you get notifications so you don't miss any of our new videos. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Level with Emily and learn more about us at levelwithemily.com, made possible by Adam Selvage at Tiki Web Services. Composer Brad Gentle manages our YouTube channel. Level with Emily Reese is a production of June Media Inc. Here at Level with Emily, we're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance. It features a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. You can hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.